Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the proper order for adjectives and a meaty middle about logical fallacies to watch out for this election season. On to the quick and dirty tip. A while ago, a listener asked me to talk about the proper order of adjectives, and I apologize, I can't find the original message, so I'm not sure who it was from, but I remember that you asked. Most native English speakers instinctively put adjectives in the right order in sentences without giving it much thought. You just know that even though they both sound icky, for some reason the ugly black goop sounds like better English than the black ugly goop. In fact, many of you will probably be surprised to learn that there's a quasi-official proper order for adjectives. Surprise! It goes like this. First comes opinion, for example, ugly and beautiful. Then comes size, such as big and little. So the order so far is the beautiful little necklace. Opinion, beautiful, little size. Then comes age, such as young and old. For example, the little old troll. So that's size and then age, little and old. Then comes shape, such as square or round. For example, the old square picture. Then comes color, such as black and yellow. For example, the square green tile. Then comes origin, such as British or American. For example, the red American desert. Then comes material, such as polyester and styrofoam. For example, the American concrete landscape. And finally, purpose. For example, swimming, as in swimming pool, and sewing, as in a sewing machine. An example would be the concrete swimming pool. The first letter of all those qualifiers spells something that almost sounds like a word. Osascomp. That's how I remember it. Osascomp. You don't want to string together too many adjectives before a noun, but sometimes three make sense. For example, you could write that Aardvark threw his old, round, wooden ball at Squiggly. Old, round, and wooden follows the recommended order, age, shape, and material. As you may have already guessed, there are a lot of exceptions to these rules, especially in the physical descriptions, size, age, shape, and color, which is why I called them quasi-official. For example, to me, the square green tile and the green square tile both sound right. It just depends on where you want to put the emphasis. 
There's also a different suggested order out there that switches the order, putting shape before age instead of after it. I've looked and looked at the differences, and there are sentences where one order seems better and sentences where the other order seems better. For example, these sentences sound better using the Osaskamp order with age before shape, the old round vase, and he sent fresh long-stemmed roses. Those both sound better than the round old vase, and he sent long-stemmed fresh roses. But this sentence sounds better with the other order that puts shape before age. The round antique vase, that sounds better than the antique round vase. But none of them sound horribly wrong, either. The other areas outside of physical description seem to hold up better. For example, the beautiful Turkish rug sounds right, and the Turkish beautiful rug sounds quite wrong. And the white marble tile definitely sounds better than the marble white tile. So that's your quick and dirty tip. If you're in doubt about how to write your adjectives, there's a somewhat useful suggested order. And I use OSASCOMP to remember that it's opinion, size, age, shape, color, origin, material, and purpose. But know that there are times when you can deviate from the order, and there's another alternative suggested order, too. And now on to logical fallacies. The key to writing a strong argument is logic. Even writers who typically have sound logic, however, can fall into illogical conclusions when they're passionate about a topic and use unsound arguments, typically referred to as fallacies. Here are a few tips for identifying the most common fallacies and how to avoid them. The first is overgeneralizations. This fallacy, also called a hasty generalization, happens when the writer draws a conclusion about a group of people based on insufficient data. Often these assumptions come from stereotypes and implicit biases, so these can sometimes be the trickiest fallacies to detect in your own writing. Perhaps you assume, for instance, that all members of a particular political party have the same stance on the death penalty, or you believe that all people who attend a certain school are wealthy. Basing an argument on unproven assumptions will ultimately make your position weaker and therefore easier to attack. As you're reviewing your writing and come across an assumption, be sure to ask yourself, do I really know that this is true? The next fallacy is a straw man. A straw man argument oversimplifies an opponent's position and then attacks it. This is a big one for politicians who might portray larger picture views instead of nuance. For example, imagine that you're assigned to write an essay opposing school uniforms. If you state requiring students to wear uniforms means they'll lose all sense of individuality, then you may be setting up a straw man argument. Instead of arguing for why students should be able to wear their own outfits, you instead take the argument to a simpler and perhaps more emotional conclusion and then argue against that broader implication. When you're listening to politicians, ask yourself whether their argument is against what their opponents are actually suggesting, or have they thrown a straw man into the ring by misrepresenting their opponent's position as something more extreme. The next fallacy is the ad hominem attack. In ad hominem attacks, a position is attacked not through reasoning related to the argument itself, but instead by attacking the opponent's personal character. For example, if Squeakly says we should have chocolate cake for dinner, 
and Aardvark responds by saying that Squiggly is an idiot, he is using an ad hominem attack, addressing only Squiggly's character and not making a logical argument about why chocolate cake is bad for dinner. Closely related to the ad hominem attack is the tuquoque fallacy. This is when, instead of opposing an argument or a criticism, the speaker or writer responds by turning it back on the accuser. It's essentially an argument that says, oh yeah, what about you? An example would be crafting an argument against doctors' anti-smoking messages by pointing out statistics about how many doctors smoke. Those facts would have nothing to do with the anti-smoking argument itself, but instead simply attack the behavior of those on the opposing side. Next is a post hoc argument. A post hoc argument assumes one event caused another based solely on the order of occurrence. The full Latin phrase post hoc ergo propter hoc means after this, therefore because of this. So to use a historical example that was once believed to be fact, people who spend time outside at night are more likely to catch malaria. Therefore, night air causes malaria. The fact that things happen in order doesn't mean that one thing actually caused the next to happen. We now know that malaria is caused by a parasite transmitted by mosquitoes, not by night air. This is somewhat like the slippery slope fallacy. In these cases, you're arguing against something with the assumption that it will lead to another undesirable outcome through a series of incremental steps. But in reality, the events may not actually be related if they do occur, or the first event might happen without the catastrophic result. Next is the red herring. A red herring is a classic misdirection. We see this all the time in fiction, from Sherlock Holmes stories to modern-day thrillers. False clues are planted to throw off the reader. Similarly, a red herring fallacy can pop up in your writing when your argument veers into an area only tangentially related to the core topic. This may be purposeful, but it's also easy to do without intending to. Here's an example in which President Ronald Reagan used humor and diversion as a red herring in answering a debate question. The reporter asked, You're already the oldest president in history. President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you'd be able to function in such circumstances? And Reagan answered, Not at all, and I want you to know that I will also not make age an issue of this campaign. I'm not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. So how do you catch yourself using fallacies? Play devil's advocate with your own writing. Ask yourself what the logical counter-argument is and whether yours holds up. Then identify any stereotypes or biases you're inadvertently using to inform your position. That should help you identify holes in your logic and set you up for a stronger result. That segment was written by Laura Vegman, who's a contributing writer for Varsity Tutors, a live learning platform that connects students with personalized instruction to accelerate academic achievement. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find my articles at quickanddirtytips.com. The podcast is available in a lot of new places lately. In addition to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, you can now find it on the NPR One app, on Google Play, on Spotify, 
And I just started publishing the audio podcast on the Grammar Girl YouTube channel because I thought some people might like to listen to the podcast from their smart TV or embed it on their website. But no matter where you listen, it always helps if you subscribe and leave a review. That's all. Thanks for listening. Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.